Well, good morning and welcome to the Story Houston. If you're there uh, live in person and welcome uh, if you're joining us online as well. Listen, if you're new here, uh, I don't preach all my sermons from this location, the Sea of Galilee in the Holy Land. This is a first for me and I'm really overwhelmed by God's goodness. I, I can't imagine ever preaching a sermon here on the shoreline of this holy site and yet here I am. Uh, many of you know that uh, we have a group of 60 people from the Story Houston that are touring the Holy Land right now. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to record a sermon from here. Um, even though I'm going to be back with you in person by the time this sermon airs, I mean, when you have an opportunity like this, you have to take it. Um, I'm going to be talking more about this body of water and uh, what it means in the gospel story and what it means to me as well. Listen, seven years ago this month, um, on that shoreline, uh, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, I became a Christian. I received Jesus as my Savior, and my whole life changed. And these past seven years have been just a whirlwind of God's grace and mercy. It was just up the shore in Capernaum where that happened, and we're headed back there tomorrow. Listen, I hope you all are well in Houston. We are starting a, a new series today called Chasing Hope, and it's all about how ordinary people make extraordinary disciples. And we're gonna be looking every week at a different person, the life of a different person who chose to follow Jesus. And uh, in particular, we're looking at their personality profiles and the reality that they lived. And, and we're examining uh, what they chose to leave behind and everything they left behind to follow Jesus. And every story is gonna be different. Every character is gonna bring a different element to the table. And we're gonna find ourselves in those stories. And I think that's especially true today as we start this series, Chasing Hope, by looking at the life and the discipleship of a man named Simon. Simon, um, or better known as Peter, although his real name was, was Simon, was the leader of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Every time uh, the disciples are listed in all four gospels, he's always the first one listed. We know a little bit about his life. We know that much of his life revolved around this body of water here, the Sea of Galilee, also called the Lake of Gennesaret. Peter was a fisherman who worked for his father and alongside his brothers, and that's how he made his living. We know a little bit more about his life too and how he stood out from the other disciples. Um, for example, Peter was married. He's the only disciple that we know for sure was married while he was following Jesus. It looks like he might have lived with his mother-in-law in Capernaum and um, we'll be visiting his uh, their house tomorrow in, in that in that village um, he was a little older than the other disciples there's a little bit of evidence in the Gospels that Peter was actually um, the only disciple of the 12 who wasn't a teenager and so he might have been in his 20s he might have been in his 30s when he chose to follow Jesus but what's interesting when we look at his story is is all that he chose to leave behind to follow this man Jesus um, Luke chapter 5 tells the story of, uh, of the time that Jesus was teaching along the shoreline, a shoreline just like this one. This body of water hasn't changed that much, even as tourists have descended upon it for centuries. And in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is teaching here, but the crowds are pressing in on him. So if you can imagine just multitudes of people that want to get closer to Jesus, they didn't have microphones then. so. If you wanted to hear Jesus' teachings, you had to get as close as possible. And Jesus, instead of just standing on the shoreline, he sees two boats that have been pulled up that morning 
um, that belonged to fishermen who were cleaning their nets. And Jesus invites himself onto one of these guys' boats, and it was the boat of Simon, Simon Peter. And he climbs up on the boat, and it says he sat down on the boat and taught the people facing the shoreline. So if you can imagine Jesus sitting on a boat, like with his legs hanging off the front in a very casual way, teaching the people, sharing this good news that he came to bring us. And, uh, and in the meantime, he's inviting himself onto uh, to someone else's boat. That's how Jesus and Peter's interaction really begins. Afterward, uh, Jesus, I guess, notices that Peter didn't really have a great catch when he went out to fish the night before. And he gives Peter a tip. He says, why don't we push out a little further? And instead of fishing on that side of the boat like you were, let's try fishing on that side of the boat. And of course, uh, they cast the nets on that side of the boat. Miraculous catch of fish. Peter realizes who he's dealing with, and he gets on his hands and knees and says, have mercy on me, Lord. And uh, Jesus says, uh, Peter, have no fear. From this day on, we're going to be fishing, but we're fishing for people now. And Peter, along with his brother and a couple of other fishermen, left everything behind to follow Jesus. It's a fascinating idea. And sometimes we try to, I think we think of that move of Peter's to, as normal. Guys were leaving their jobs all the time to follow great teachers, but that wasn't the case. Peter was probably the oldest of his siblings, the oldest son. The expectations on him to be normal and do his duty and follow his father's business and take it on as his father got older and support his mother and his sisters, that would have been overwhelming for Peter. And so to walk away like he did was um, actually to bring shame on himself and on his family. It was a black eye on, on the family name. And so he was leaving not just his job and his livelihood with a wife and probably with kids at home. Jesus wasn't promising a salary to his disciples. He was also bringing this family shame in an honor culture that would have been a very big deal. It brought to mind for me this other story that's a little bit uh, off the beaten path in the Gospels in Luke chapter 9 when a guy comes to Jesus and said, I want to follow you, but first I need to go home and wait until my father dies. And when my father dies and I can honor him and give him a proper burial, then I'll come and follow you. And Jesus says, look, let the, bur let the dead bury their own dead. And you're either in with me or you're not. And, uh, and I think that was a, a deeply seated, like fe a felt, need for the for the disciples to know that you know Jesus doesn't just take some of us he takes all of us and there's no one foot in and one foot out because listen all these guys had left their fathers Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John Jesus himself if you think about it left his father twice <laughs> he left his father in heaven to come to earth and he left Joseph's um, uh, carpentry or, or building business to go and, and become a full-time rabbi. So when Jesus said, look, we're gonna go fish for people now, it's full-time, it's all or nothing, Peter hopped right up and went. And I think that tells us something about his personality, y'all. Um, Peter was, if nothing else, enthusiastic. I think that was his primary um, personality profile, right? He was an enthusiastic person. And that comes through again and again in the Gospels. Keep in mind, it was Peter who, when Jesus walked on the water, it was Peter that got out of the boat and walked with him. And that's not exactly how we imagine it. I, I don't think it really looked the way we think about it um, in our minds. Listen, that happened in the middle of the night. 
We were walking around this area last night looking at this body of water. You can barely see anything. It's completely dark, even though everything's lit up around it now because of the tourist industry and everything. Out there, it was dark. And if it was dark last night, it was dark 2,000 years ago in the middle of the night. And the disciples are out on a boat, in a wooden boat in choppy waters. And Peter, uh, Jesus comes walking along and Peter realizes it's Jesus. First of all, Peter's really scared. He thinks it's a ghost, but then he realizes that it's Jesus. And Peter of the 12 is the only one who wants to step out on the water and walk with Jesus. And, and, and he, at first he goes, you know, Jesus, if it's you and, and if you want me to follow you out on this water, I will. And Peter bravely gets out and walks on the water. But then the wind blows a little bit. Peter loses his nerve and he goes from being this big, brave man to just folding completely into this scared little child. And he goes, Lord, save me. And, uh, and Jesus pulls him up and says, Peter, what's wrong with you? And they have a little moment. But it was Peter who was enthusiastic and passionate enough to get out of that boat and, and try to walk on water, which tells you a little bit about his, you know, his personality and his mindset, his outlook. He was not always thinking things through, but for Peter, perfection was not the name of the game. It was, it was passion. You know, and you see that coming up again and again where he speaks out of turn, even though he has good intentions. There, there was a time when um, we call it the, the great transfiguration story, right, where Jesus goes up on the mountain and he, he has this little powwow with, uh, with Moses and with Elijah, this supernatural story. And Peter's there with two other disciples. And uh, after Peter sees Jesus and Moses and, and, uh, and Elijah having this conversation, Peter, um, I guess to break the awkward silence, Peter says, you know, Jesus, it's really great you brought me along with you up here because I can, I can build you guys a few houses. I can build a house for you and for Elijah and for Moses, and we'll just hang out up here on the mountain. And then Mark adds this little editorial in his gospel. He says, Peter did not know what he was talking about, <laughs> which is just great because they saw him the way that, that we see him. And again and again, we see this coming up. And I think for that reason, like, I can relate to Peter. I don't know about all of you. I can relate to Peter. I'm an enthusiastic person. And my sense is that Houston is an enthusiastic city. We are an enthusiastic people. You know, we, we are enthusiastic about our sports teams, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I remember the Astros uh, World Series run. We're enthusiastic about our Astros. I've been out of the loop, out of the country for several days now. I don't know how the off season's going, but I hope we're having a, I'm being told I shouldn't talk about the Astros. Um, so, sorry, I'll just keep going. I don't know what's going on, but I hope the Astros and the Texans are doing well uh, this time of year. We've been over here, I'm out of the loop. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're enthusiastic about our winners when they win. We're enthusiastic about all kinds of crazy things. Our pets, essential oils, that's not even a thing. And we're enthusiastic about those things. We have all this, I guess, misdirected passion, right? And we see that in Peter's life as well. And uh, the thing about enthusiasm is that it can be great on the upswing. It can be as good as it can be. It can also be just as bad on the downswing. And we see that in Peter's story. Um, if you need to know anything about Peter, I think it's summed up in this uh, sort of tandem of stories where he gets two different nicknames. The first one uh, happens when Jesus says uh, to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And it's Simon Peter who says, you are the Messiah, you're the one. And no one else said that, but Simon Peter. And it's that point where Jesus gives Simon the nickname Peter, 
which wasn't a name, it was just a noun that meant rock. So Peter, at that point, became the rock. And Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And if you can imagine Peter, a 20-something guy, getting such an awesome nickname from Jesus himself, I'm the rock, I'm the rock. You can imagine him prissing around with his, in front of the other guys, like, yeah, I'm the man, I'm the rock. And then in like the next story, um, Jesus says, I'm gonna have to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter's the one that speaks up and says, never, Lord, that's not the plan. We're going to Jerusalem, but we're going to take over. And it's then that Jesus gives Peter kind of another nickname. He says, get behind me, Satan. So in just a matter of moments, right, Peter goes from being the rock to being Satan. <laughs> and that's kind of a, a good summary of, of Peter's high and low, right? Uh, his, his ceiling and his floor. And I think I can relate to that as well. We see that fleshing itself out in the stories around Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. So um, just before Jesus was crucified, um, uh, Jesus tells everybody what's going to happen. And, and Peter says, uh, you know, I will never forsake you, Lord. I will stand beside you to the death. And Jesus goes, okay, rock. I'm just telling you that by the time the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. Peter doesn't believe him. Now, to Peter's credit, when the people, the, the Roman soldiers and the high priests came to arrest Jesus, Peter was there, and he was there with a weapon. He drew his sword, and he lopped a guy's ear off with a sword, which either means Peter was a master swordsman or he was just terrible with a sword. I'm going with the latter. I think Jesus, uh, that Peter probably wasn't that great with a sword. He took a random swipe and uh, lopped a guy's ear off. Jesus patched the guy's ear up, but Peter was there. We're also told that Peter, and only Peter and John, followed Jesus and the mob that had arrested him to the trial, to the high priest's house. Again, in the middle of the night, Peter was there. And, and you know, Peter's outside the house, or maybe the scene is that Peter's on the porch of this house. And keep in mind, in the first century, there were no, like, windows and stuff in houses. There was, uh, it was easy to hear from the inside out and the outside in what was going on. And I think it's, I think it's fascinating what happens at the trial of Jesus. So Jesus is being questioned inside. It's just madness that's ensuing. Peter is just outside the house within earshot, and he is warming himself by a charcoal fire. He's keeping his hands warm. It's a cold night. And um, during that moment, it's about an hour's time, we're told, Peter faced three questions. Aren't you with him? Aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you with the Galilean? And every time, three times, Peter says, no, no, and no. Now, after um, the third denial, the rooster crows, of course, but there's this, there's this line in Luke's gospel that we often, I think, overlook. After the rooster crowed, Jesus and Peter locked eyes. It says Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Now, if you can imagine the, the weight of that moment, the gravity of that moment for Peter. He had done exactly what Jesus said he would do, exactly what he said he would never do. And then he locks eyes with his best friend, the master that he gave his life to follow, the one that he had just let down in the most just awful way. And so Peter, the enthusiast, his enthusiasm swung the other way. It says he ran out of the house 
weeping bitterly. Apparently from that moment, the great Simon Peter quit. He was a failure. He walked away. He turned in his badge. He was no longer a disciple after that. We have evidence for this in the Gospels. First of all, um, when the, uh, the tomb was empty and the angel told the women who had come to the tomb to embalm Jesus' body, the angel said, he's not here, he is risen. And the angel says, and this is interesting, go tell the disciples and then go tell Peter. And so the assumption here is that Peter is not with the disciples, but the angel, or I guess God himself, wants the women to go and find him. So go tell the disciples and then go tell Peter. It, it looks as if he stopped being a disciple after he let Jesus down that way. Now, if that's the case, how did he come back around to become this great leader of the church that we know him to be? Well, there's a couple of things that happened. First of all, Jesus and Peter had a secret meeting. So the risen Jesus, before appearing to anyone else, the risen, to any of the other disciples, he sought Peter out first. I think uh, this is not something we think about in the, the, the Easter story, right? But, but Jesus and Peter had a one-on-one. -on -one. And we know this uh, for two reasons. First of all, in Luke 24, there's a couple of people that come to the disciples and they say, we saw Jesus after he died. And the disciples are like, yes, he's risen. He has appeared to Peter, right? And then uh, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions this as well. The, the risen Lord appeared first to Peter and then to the other disciples. Now think about that. Why would Jesus do that after being let down in such a dramatic way? Why wouldn't he go and spend time first with the faithful disciples? You know, the ones that didn't deny him three times as he's on trial. Why go to Peter first? There's something that Jesus is doing here. Jesus wants Peter back. And so Peter has a literal come to Jesus meeting where Jesus works on him and apparently brings him back into the fold because after that we find Jesus back with the disciples. In John chapter 21, Peter is back among the disciples and listen, uh, he's not all the way back because he's still troubled, I think, by his shame. And this is, uh, I, I think this is evident in Peter's wanting to be alone. Peter says in John 21, I'm going fishing, as if to say by myself, I'll see you later, guys. I'm going fishing, which is just, to me, one of the saddest things ever. I guess some guys like to fish alone, but guys like Peter don't like to fish alone. We thrive on community, friendship, right? That's why you go fishing, to be with your boys. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And then the disciples in this awesome act of brotherhood and community, the disciples say, we will come with you. Even though they're afraid for their lives at that point, we will come with you, Peter. And they spend the whole night fishing together right out there on their boats, just coping with everything that they had been through for the past few years and especially the past few days with the trauma of Jesus's arrest and his crucifixion. So they fish all night long. They don't catch much. Apparently they were fishing about like I fish. I've never caught much, but I like to be out there with guys who love me. Peter was surrounded by guys who loved him out there. In the morning, about 6 a.m., about an hour before now, right? So 
about an hour ago, it was a little bit darker as the sun was coming up over the mountains. They were about 100 yards out from the shore on their boat. And they're coming in slowly, and they notice a man here on the shore building a fire. They don't recognize him. It's a little weird for a man to be building a fire at 6 in the morning on the shore. But they don't really pay him any mind until he yells at them from the shore. Hey, guys, catch anything? And they feel like he's being a smart aleck because he can clearly see they haven't caught anything. They've been pulling in empty nets for an hour. Guys, you caught anything? No. No, go about your business. And he goes, well, maybe, maybe you ought to try throwing the nets on the other side of the boat. Remember, that's what Jesus said when he called Peter in Luke chapter 5. But Peter doesn't get it. It doesn't register with Peter that that's Jesus and he's doing something, right? It takes John telling Peter. John says to Peter, hey, it's the Lord. And at that point, we find the most beautiful, hilarious passage, I think, in all the Bible. John 21, verse 7. When Peter realized, the moment he realized that it was Jesus on the shore, it says he put down his fishing gear and he put on his clothes for he was naked. Now listen, it's cold out here right now. And I don't know what it was like for Peter out on that water. First of all, Peter fishing naked is a tremendous image. I've, I've Visualizing it here at the Sea of Galilee is a different experience that I have ever had with this passage. But he's out 100 yards and he puts on his clothes for he was fishing naked and then he jumps in the water. He put his clothes on to jump in the water and he gets to Jesus sopping wet, fully clothed, and he comes to where Jesus has set up the fire and he realizes that Jesus is making breakfast. Now, as he comes close, a familiar smell registers with Peter. It's a smell that every man knows very well. Uh, it's a charcoal fire. Now, I don't know where Jesus got charcoal near the Sea of Galilee, but he had to have brought it there. There's no charcoal around here. So he had to have brought it intentionally. Jesus is doing something here, building this charcoal fire. You know, there's only two charcoal fires mentioned in the whole Bible. The word is anthrakia in the Greek. And the first anthrakia mentioned in the Bible is the one that Peter was warming himself by outside the home of the high priest as Jesus was on trial. The second and only other anthrakia in the whole Bible was the one Jesus built here. They say that of all the five senses, the, the one most closely connected to memory is the sense of smell. Have you ever smelled a charcoal fire? How familiar that is? Peter did too. And Peter knew that Jesus was up to something. Jesus was recreating a scene for Peter. This is what happened next in John chapter 21. When they had finished eating, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. He's referencing there Peter's um, martyrdom, which would come later uh, in the story. Verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Now you've probably heard that there's more than one word for love in Greek. There's four familiar words for love in Greek. We only have one in English. The first one is agape, which is the perfect love of God. The second one is storge, which is uh, more like the love a family shares, the love that a parent feels for a child. The third one is eros or eros, which uh, I don't really even want to talk about in the Holy Land. It feels wrong. The fourth one uh, is uh, phileo, which is the love, the most basic fundamental kind of love, but it's also the most casual kind of love. It's the love among brothers, more or less. Um, and that's important to know in this story because in English, we've always read it as if Jesus asked the same question three times and the third time Peter got upset because Jesus's repetition was an insult to Peter. That's not what this story is telling us. The first time Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? He says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter, do you love me with the perfect love of God? Do you love me, Peter, the way that I love you? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know I phileo you. I love you, but it's not perfect. I love you, but not the way you love me. The second time Jesus asked Peter, he asked the same. Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me perfectly the way I love you? Peter's response the second time, the same. Lord, you know I only phileo you. My love doesn't live up to yours. It's like an apology. The third time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He says, Peter, do you phileo me? That's when Peter gets upset. It's not because Jesus was being repetitious or insulting or condescending. It's because Jesus was accommodating Peter's imperfect love. Peter, do you agape me? You know I phileo you. Peter, do you agape me? You know I phileo you. Peter, do you phileo me? Because that's enough for me. So Peter says, yes, Lord. Through his tears, he says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. And then Jesus at that moment officially reinstates Peter as a disciple, as the leader of his church. Peter's love wasn't perfect. Peter himself wasn't perfect. 
but he was passionate. And Jesus just wanted Peter close so he could redirect Peter's passion. Initially, Jesus redirected his passion away from fishing for fish to fishing for people. And, and as Peter followed him, Jesus had to redirect Peter's passion from going to Jerusalem to take over, to be in charge, to be powerful and famous, to the will of God for Peter's life, to be the leader of his church even if it meant being taken to where he didn't want to go and stretched out and killed for this cause. Peter, do you phileo me? Yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. That's enough. Let's go. Listen, you don't have to be perfect to follow Jesus. Your love for him doesn't have to mirror the magnitude of his love for you. All he wants is your passion, not your perfection. And we run around trying to prove something that we're good enough. And when we fail, it's like, Peter, we wanna walk away. We think we don't measure up. Jesus sent Peter a message that day on this shoreline and he sends us the same message today you don't need perfection all you need is passion and when you come close to Jesus the closer you come to him the more he redirects our passion from the things that don't really matter all that much like sports and all the obsessions that take us over and he directs them to the only thing that really matters, which is Him. That love is the reason you're here. Sharing that love is the purpose He wants to direct your passion toward. Being here at the Holy Land with 60 other people from the Story Houston, it's been a, a wake-up call, really. It's been amazing to watch ordinary people falling more deeply in love madly in love with this same Jesus who set up that charcoal fire on this shoreline. Because when you're here, it's so clear that it's not about your morality or your perfection or your good behavior. It's all about the amazing grace of God. I hope that you'll let your heart be set on fire for that amazing grace and come closer to Jesus and let him redirect all your passions toward him and sharing that love you find in him with the world around you. The events that took place around this body of water 2,000 years ago, they changed the world forever. The event that took place in my heart seven years ago this month, just up the shoreline, changed my world forever. And he'll change your world forever too if you let him, regardless of the life you've lived or the mistakes you've made. Peter knew very well the mistakes he made, but he chose to trust in Jesus's grace and to receive his forgiveness and to put all of his passion in him. I pray you'll do the same right now and today. Would you pray with me? Lord, From this 
beautiful place where history was changed forever, where the human story took a dramatic turn for the better, where we started to learn who you really are. We put a face with the name. We realized that all of our religions are just really the tip of the iceberg, really just empty grasping at the truth that really all that you want isn't our religion, but a relationship with us where we come to know you more and to understand your love for us and how great and deep and wide it is and how our love for you could never measure up to that, but you don't care. You'll take whatever love our little broken hearts can give you and you'll invite us to follow you and to share that love of yours with the world around us. That's really this world's only hope. We see that so clearly right now and I pray that before we go out into our busy lives again, back to our jobs, back to our houses, our chores, our errands, I pray that right now as we see this so clearly, we would step into it. Receive the great love you have for us and know that you overlook our sins and our failures to love us and invite us to follow you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this reminder this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.